Let's go to the Lord in, in prayer and ask for His help as we give ourselves to the study uh, of, of, of His Word uh, by means of the language of our confession. What, what, what have all those of Reformed faith and, and most of those who are Protestantly Orthodox, what have they confessed and agreed upon with respect to the Word of God? So let's, let's go and ask for His help, and we'll dive right in. Father, we are so thankful that You have made Yourself known to us through Your Word. Uh, we're grateful that we have that we can hold this in our hands. Uh, we, and we can be, because of its immediate accessibility and the fact that we can hold it in our hands, in, in our phones, in the, the leather-bound Bible, we, we, can, we can actually think of it as a small thing because we can hold it, and yet the, the whole universe cannot contain the weight of your revelation to men. And I pray that you will, will fill us with a sense of awe, a sense of wonder, a sense of glory and joy, the fact that our Creator has spoken to men, that our Creator has made Himself known, that our Creator has given Himself, a full re- given of Himself a full revelation that we can study and read and understand. And, and we pray, particularly this morning, that you will fill our minds with the truth with respect to how you have revealed yourself to us, and how we are to interpret those statements that you have made through men by means of your Spirit. We ask for your help now in Christ's name. Amen. We, our task today is to look at paragraphs 8, 9, and 10 in our confession within that first chapter, still here of, of God or of the Holy Scriptures. And our, the, the three things we're going to look at today is the use of the Scriptures. How do we use the scriptures? How do we think about uh, the text themselves? Because for the most part, I think all of us probably have copies of English Bibles this morning. Uh, One translation or another, but we have copies of English translations. And what do we make of that? Because, again, most of us are not fluent in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, the three primary languages uh, that were the original languages of the scriptures. And so we are limited to these translated copies. Is that valid? How does that help us? And then secondly, how do we interpret the scripture? That's really the subject of chapter or verse or paragraph. Paragraph nine is how do we interpret scripture? And and then in paragraph 10, there is a closing statement here on the supremacy of Scripture. And, and there are some explicit com- comparisons made to other things and, and seeing how Scripture compares to other things and seeing how Scripture is supreme in every regard. I'm going to read briefly from Second Peter. We looked at this text uh, in short last week. I want to look at it again. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Verse 19, this is the word of God, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by 
the Holy Spirit. And we looked at this, that text previously with respect to the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, who is the author of Scripture? We're told that God breathes this out. But Peter says something else that, that is applicable to what we're going to see today, and that is that the Scriptures are not the product, not only the Scriptures are not the product of any private interpretation, but even the interpretation of that Scripture ought not be the product of our own imaginations, of our own reason, our own human thinking. But even the interpretation itself ought to be governed by, bounded by, and derived from the Word of God. So let's think about the use of Scripture. In paragraph 8 in our Confession of Faith, this is the longest paragraph, I think the second longest paragraph in this chapter. And we have a statement about the original languages. And as I'm reading this, I want you to kind of think in mind, what, what kind of errors, maybe then, but also what errors presently that you're aware of, can be helped if we understand the content of, of this paragraph? We confess the following with respect to the Scriptures. Paragraph 8, the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages and therefore authentic. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have a right unto and interest in the scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God, dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. We're introduced to a concept that's that's articulated well with the Latin word autographa. And you can hear in that autographa, the English word autograph just comes straight over. If you sign your name to something, if you, 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 you're you giving your autograph, it, it's a self-revelation. And so the, the original autographs of the scriptures were written primarily in three languages. The confession mentions two in, in a more general sense, Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of old. So the majority of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. There are some exceptions to that. There, there are some, some sections within Daniel, for example, that are written in Aramaic. But for the most part, Hebrew is the tongue, is the native language of the people of old, and that was the language of the Old Testament. And then under the New Testament, most of the, the New Testament is written in Greek, You'll find places in the Gospels, for example, where even the text itself will say that Jesus spoke in Aramaic. That was also a common tongue, but, but Greek was the lingua franca of the Roman Empire. It was the, it was the national language, the official language of the Roman Empire. So in God's providence, it allowed for the church to advance through Paul and the other apostles' missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire, and they could go and speak Greek. It was a universal language. It would be like today, being able to go 
in large parts of the, of the world to be able to go and speak English and to be able to communicate the gospel in English, knowing that even those in other countries who have different native tongues would still have a likelihood of being able to understand English. So we have these, these autographs. We also have the actual manuscripts, which is the apographs. That's the actual copies. So auto, the autograph refers to God's self-revelation to men, recorded in either Hebrew or Greek. And yet, there was, at one point, an original copy. I read from Second Peter. There was, at one point, an actual scroll or sheet of papyrus or something that contained, on which was written the letter that we know as Second Peter. That original document doesn't exist, or, the, or at least it hasn't been discovered. And, and that's true for all of the scriptures. We don't have those original um, apographs. So what do, we, what do we believe about that? What does that do for us as Christians? Well, does the, does the confession require us to recognize then only one specific Greek text or only one specific Hebrew text? Because what we have are surviving copies, a multitude of surviving copies. In fact, by a factor of, of scores or hundreds, we have more um, auto, or we have more apographs. We have more copies of those apographs of the scriptures than we do of any other ancient document in all of the world. If I remember correctly, um, McDowell talked about the the Iliad. I think was the second most witnessed ancient document, and the the, the copies of the New Testament exceeded that by something like fifty times. Uh, there are far greater number of recent copies of those manuscripts, and that allows scholars to compare those, set multiple copies side by side by side, and even though there are sometimes copyist errors, scribal errors, transcription errors, when you collate all those texts together, we're able to reproduce a, a copy of that original manuscript to a high degree of certainty. And yet, we can acknowledge that there still are differences. What, what, do you, what kind of, of error today do you think this might touch upon? You familiar with, familiar with anything? I'm sorry? There's, there's that. There's certainly those who say, well, there's so many, we don't have the originals, there's so many copies that it's just, it's just not reliable. So you have that on, on kind of one end of the spectrum, that... that we have because we have so many different manuscripts who have some, you know, uh, variations in copying that the whole thing is unreliable. Then I guess you put it on a spectrum. The whole other end of the spectrum is a movement to prefer one and only one text over all the others. Familiar with any of the arguments of King James onlyism? Well, that's exactly the argument is that the Textus Receptus, the, the received text, the text on which the, the authorized Bible in 1611 was translated, that is the one and only text that God himself preserved. Well, certainly those who wrote our confession in 1677, those who wrote the Westminster Confession in 1646, and the Savoy in 1658 were aware of all of those things and were, in fact, in many ways, nearer 
to those issues than we are <clears throat> because of their proficiency in Latin and Greek. The Reformers from the very beginning knew of these various manuscripts, and they knew of differences within them, and yet none of them, not one Reformer ever indicated a view that these manuscripts were somehow corrupted. Not one. Richard Mueller has argued that we can find agreement by collating these texts. And, and, and he says that there is no quote, there's quote, no material difference, and that therefore we can affirm all of those manuscripts, and then as a result, we can deny none of them. We can count them all as sufficiently reliable, while at the same time acknowledging there are differences. Sometimes uh, I'm, I'm reading today from the ESV, and I'm just looking at the at the Footnotes on the bottom of the page for Second Peter. The very first footnote references some manuscripts say Simon rather than Peter. The second footnote, or slave. It's a different contextual rendering. Often our, our English Bibles will give to us a footnote explaining here are the choices, either the choices in manuscripts or choices in translation, and those ought not to trouble us. shouldn't be a bother to us, because we actually have the doctrines of God given to us in, in full. So the argument for providential preservation cannot be an argument that God has preserved one and only one particular text. Rather, that it's an argument that God has preserved his witness in whole, in total. And so it's helpful for us to understand that, on the one hand, so we don't get caught up in some of these, these, these errors. But on the other hand, we don't get unsettled by these claims that the, the Scriptures are not reliable. They're just, of course, usually that's followed up, those, those claims that they're not reliable, it's, it's followed up with a claim, well, these are just man-made documents. These are just human writings of human beings. And so we, we know the real reason for that rejection has nothing to do with uh, manuscript evidence. It has to do with a hard heart that doesn't wish to submit uh, to the authority of God. But we also confess that, beginning right in the middle of paragraph 8, Well, let's back up a little bit further. The phrase that says, by his singular care and providence is kept pure in all ages and therefore authentic. We're speaking about the, the comprehensive witness of God about himself has been kept pure. The doctrines themselves have been kept pure. That doesn't mean that every single word exists exactly as it was originally written. And there's a couple reasons for that. One of that is because we, we, we can admit there are differences in the manuscripts attributed to scribes and copyists and um, handwriting these scrolls, and there were sometimes a letter omitted. I saw in one of the, the examples that I was studying this week, one of the texts references word, and the other wants to know it should be world. The difference was an L. And, and you can very easily see your writing and doing the very tedious work of handwriting a script by candlelight 
and how one letter might be added or subtracted. It's not a hard thing to do, but when we can collate those manuscripts together, we're able to return, as it were, to that original concept, the original meaning. But the second thing is, not every word in the Hebrew language can translate into English. Not every word in the Greek language can translate well into English. So we, we, we are forced, when I say we, translators are forced to adapt one language into another. So there is necessarily some measure of interpretation in the work of translation. And yet, God in his singular care and providence has kept this pure in all ages, and therefore it's authentic. And if it's authentic, what does that mean? It's trustworthy. We can rely upon it. So, as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally appeal to appeal to them. What do you think it means, the church is finally to appeal to them? First of all, what is, what is them? What's the, the, for you grammarians, what's the antecedent of that pronoun? Yes, exactly right. So when there are, are controversies, we don't go, if there is something, if we're trying to sort through the meaning of a text, and there are controversies with respect to the meaning of a text, we don't, we don't rely upon comparing the, the New American Standard, the King James, to the ESV, to us, some other translation. We go to the original languages. So the study of, of the original languages is very important. It's helpful so that we can better discern what the original meaning of these, these words, these phrases, these doctrines is. So we want, finally, authoritatively to appeal to them. But... Because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have a right unto and an interest in the Scriptures, we are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation. And that just simply means translated into common tongue, common language. Because we have a right, every person, every child of God has a right to be able to read and understand the scriptures for himself and not to have that mediated to him through a priest or through the church, but to be able to have direct access to the word of God. And yet, because the vast majority of the people on the planet are not proficient in Hebrew, not proficient in Greek, not even proficient in English. In fact, some are not even proficient in their native tongues with respect to reading and writing it. And yet, we are able, in fact, commanded to translate the scriptures into common languages. That the word of God, dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures, may have hope. Now, I, I hope that in your own mind, you will, you will think about this, these things with respect to paragraph 6 and 7 that we looked at last week. The, the sufficiency of the scriptures, or the perfection of the scriptures, and the clarity of the scriptures. Paragraph 6, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. Do you think we can, do you think it's a worthy goal of translators that, that the Bible's message, God's original message in Hebrew and Greek, can be sufficiently translated into common languages around the world 
so that those sufficient things can be translated or, or translated and communicated to God's people? Yes, I think so. And, and, and we may still, in, in some obscure dialect, we may have a debate over one particular word or phrase within some portion of the Scriptures or another. But are we able to translate the Scriptures in such a way that they can sufficiently reveal God and His glory and man's great need? Yes, absolutely we can. And then also in, in paragraph 7, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation, are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another, that not only the learned but the unlearned, in the due use of ordinary means, may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. So we think about translation work. There will be scoffers. Uh, later on, Peter will use that word, uh, there will be scoffers who come in the latter days. And they will mock the things of God, and, and including and probably especially his word. So they will attack the, the truthfulness, the veracity, the authenticity of the dependability of God's word. And we want to be ready to respond that whatever minor differences in manuscript copies might exist, that doesn't in any way impair or impede or shroud in darkness those things necessary for men and women and children to come to faith in Christ, to be transformed and sanctified according to his word, while admitting that there may be a phrase here and there. You know, I'm not even sure. Sometimes you'll see, and especially if you're going through the Psalms, you will see footnotes sometimes in your Bible that says, meaning of that Hebrew word is uncertain. Where the translators go, I don't know. I don't know what that particular word was. And, and you see it particularly with reference to certain animals. Um, you go in the, in the description of the Old Testament on the construction of the temple, there are particular minerals or jewels or gems, and the footnote will say, we're not sure exactly what that was. Does that change the message of the Scriptures? Does that undermine your confidence? Does that, does that negate the reality that God has indeed preserved His witness to His people sufficiently, necessarily? It shouldn't. The doctrines themselves have been fully translated while a particular word might have been lost to translation. But the doctrine itself is preserved. So that's, that's the essence of paragraph 8, is, is, is the, the one, the statement that the scriptures were indeed written in Hebrew and Greek. Two, that we, there's a necessity of us translating them and to participate in works of translation. And so as a, as a church body, uh, we ought to pray for that. We ought to pray that that work of translation would continue. There are people groups on the planet right now who do not have the Word of God in their native language. The work of translation is not complete. There's much work yet to be done. In fact, some of the hardest work is yet to be done, and there is a necessity. Of, of bringing the Word of God to the people, ordinary people, so that they can understand it. Paragraphs 
9 and 10. Chapter, paragraph 9 deals with the interpretation of the Scriptures. These are much shorter paragraphs. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. So very, very clearly, we, have, we confess that the Scripture alone is the only infallible interpretation. You know, this is, this, this is uh, exactly what Peter teaches us. Uh, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. God alone has the authority to, to say what he means and to explain what he means in his self-revelation. So when we, when we come to a particular passage, again, we think about this with respect to the clarity of Scripture. Not all Scriptures are alike plain. So one of the rules of interpretation is you interpret the less clear passages by, by use of the more clear passages. Those passages seem somewhat obscure at first, ought to be interpreted in the light of those passages that are more plain or more clear. So Scripture alone is that only infallible interpretation, not the best scholar, either alive or dead. Our, our ultimate source of authority, our ultimate source of interpretation is, in fact, the Scriptures. I think I mentioned this in, in a previous lecture. D.A. Carson once remarked that an Ephesian farmer, your average Ephesian farmer, had a better understanding of the New Testament than the most learned and skilled New Testament scholar. You think about that because that farmer would have understood natively, intuitively, some of the nuances of the language. Some words that have one shade of meaning versus another shade of meaning. And so when we come to a passage of Scripture, rather than relying upon our own linguistic work, I mean, even if you are proficient in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, rather than relying upon your own skills and your own word studies on that text alone, the right and infallible rule of interpretation is actually to compare that scripture with other scriptures, with the whole counsel of God's word. This is the analogy of scripture, that we are to compare scripture with scripture in order to, if we, if we, if we're, if we're, Interpreting one particular text in such a way that we find that it contradicts other passages of Scripture, we can be certain that at least one of those we're not interpreting correctly because there is no contradiction within God's Word. And the other thing that's asserted here is when a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. In other words, there is only one single meaning for any passage of Scripture. Now, I'm not saying that there are not layers of meaning, so we can look, for example, in the Old Testament prophets and see that they would have understood one thing about the revelation they received, and yet in Christ there's more now, more light and more revealed in their statements. But what I'm saying is there's not two different meanings. Of a text. And in our 
particularly in our postmodern age and the way that that infects our thinking, where the critics will argue that, well, you have your interpretation of that and I have mine, and we can both just be right. Well, that, that can't be true. When, when God speaks, he has one meaning in mind. It may be difficult for us to understand that meaning. It may take some work for us to get to it. But we cannot accept the answer that there are two different meanings of a passage. Or that there are two different things can be true that are mutually exclusive. So paragraph 9 is, is, is very straightforward and very, very simple. And that is that Scripture must be interpreted with Scripture and that the Scriptures cannot result in multiple interpretations of the same passage. If there are multiple interpretations, at least one of them is wrong. Maybe all of them are wrong. If you and I both have two different interpretations of a passage, it's possible both of us can be wrong. But it's not possible that both of us can be right. And finally, in paragraph 10, we read this. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are, be to, are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved, or ultimately resolved. <clears throat> The scripture, when there are controversies, and, and when there have been controversies throughout history, the appeal is not ultimately to human reason. It cannot be ultimately to church tradition. It cannot be ultimately even to councils or to ancient writers. But finally and fully and exclusively, into the scriptures themselves. And, and this draws on the fact that we go back to the very first paragraph. The holy first sentence in the first paragraph, the holy scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So the only infallible way to settle a controversy of doctrine or theology is to root that solution in the only infallible testimony, which is the Word of God. Our confession of faith is not infallible. The, the, the ancient creeds are not infallible. We think they are good. We think they are, they are useful. We think they, are, they do accurately commend and summarize the doctrines contained in the Scriptures. But, they are, but only the Scriptures are infallible. So when, when these controversies arise, if these controversies arise, they are to be examined and settled by the Scriptures alone. Now there's a couple of, of, of interesting phrases. We, I think we can readily understand what, what is meant by decrees of councils. Some of those councils, the Reformers, would have readily acknowledged and accepted. Athanasian Creed, the Council, the, the council of Chalcedon. Others would, would have readily given their hearty amen to those. But there were much later councils of the church. Council of Trent, for example. The reformers would have universally repudiated. 
and would have said these are wrong. So they are they're not referring to only one kind or one measure or one uh, time period of councils, but that those councils themselves are not infallible or the opinions of ancient writers. As you read through the reformers, as you read through the ones who actually wrote the language contained in our confession, you will find they often refer to ancient writers, to the fathers of the church, to the medieval scholastics. And, and so they had a great affinity for many of those writers, and many of them they, they would quote favorably. And yet it is not their opinions, those ancient writers' opinions, that are ultimately determinative. They would recognize that men can be wrong and have been wrong. Pri um, Yeah, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, versus a reference to some of the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, they, they believed that <clears throat> papal declarations, for example, were merely doctrines of men. Uh, there was no uh, divine help or inspiration given to those commands. These were merely the doctrines of men. <clears throat> but here's one of the phrases I want to look at. This idea of private spirits, what do you suppose that they meant by private spirits? Special revelations from God, yeah, that's exactly right. They're not talking here about private interpretations. That's already been addressed by the doctrines of men. That would be a private interpretation. <clears throat> this is special revelation. Um, for those of you who like, like history, you may want to hazard a guess as to what particular group they had in mind, what particular group that was, was teaching and espousing and promoting, even in this time period, the idea of special revelation. Is that The Gnostics were, were, were there, but a little bit earlier, they, they had this idea of just a, a general kind of special knowledge, but there were those who claimed to be Orthodox Christians and yet depended upon, in fact, promoted special revelation or divine revelation. The Quakers. The Quakers. This idea of an inner light. And they, and they referred to the scriptures, some of the Quaker writers referred to the scriptures as a dead letter. And that there were actually meanings within the scriptures that could only be discerned, not cognitively, not by faithful study of the scriptures and comparing that scripture to other scripture but by an, an added word within the Word of God. <clears throat> Listen to Jim Renahan makes this, this observation. He says, similarly, one more factor is the challenge that was presented from the late 1640s by the Quakers. They regularly and frequently accused the Puritans of holding a dead letter because of the Puritan focus on the centrality of the written word. For the Quakers... The living internal testimony of the Spirit was of exceedingly greater importance than dry and dead words printed on a page. In the case of the confession, even claims to private spirits, without giving credence to them, had to be subordinated to the Scripture given by the Spirit as a fixed rule of faith. So what they're saying is, they're not, they're not saying that we, we think this private interpretation is valid, or, this, or not private interpretation, these private spirits is valid. We're saying, even if you think that's true, 
that would have to be subordinated to the scriptures. We had a, I had a similar issue early on in, in my pastoral ministry. It wasn't dealing with Quakers. I don't think I've ever, well, I think at once I met a, an actual Quaker. But we were dealing in the homeschool world. You ever heard of, of Bill Gothard? in the probably first generation, first large-scale generation of homeschoolers in the 1980s, Bill Gothard literally would fill up stadiums in large cities with homeschoolers and others, and he would would teach and and package the whole curriculum for homeschool and, and, uh, well, he had a manual for almost every conceivable aspect of your life. He had something to say about it. Uh, he had a unique uh, knack for twisting the scriptures in such a way that he could make them say almost anything he wanted them to. But one of the things that he did, he he would 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 parse the Greek word for logos, which is the word, and rima, which is a synonym for logos in the Greek. And yet he made those into two different concepts. And, we, and the argument went very similar to the Quakers, where there was a written letter, but then there was a spirit-derived meaning that sort of transcended the written meaning. And it became very mystical. And so we had even something well-intentioned but deceived uh, families in our midst who, who bought into those kinds of things and would, would, would look to memorize a, a passage of Scripture, not to hide it in their hearts, they might not, might not sin against God, or not only for that, but so that as they meditated upon it and prayed, that they were hoping the Spirit would give to them some new revelation with respect to that particular passage, and give to them some greater meaning. So it almost is a Gnostic kind of, of thinking. So it... Uh, I mention this just to say, this is not something that we can look at and say, well, that's an ancient heresy. Whew, glad that's over with. Uh, it has hit near and, and even close in conservative homeschool communities uh, and still kind of lags or shows up from time to time. But of course, we have many other examples, even you know, further afield from us into the whole world of, of charismatic. Pentecostalism, and then now some sort of blending, if we will, of people say, I'm, I'm Reformed, but I also believe in the ongoing miraculous gifts. Or I'm Reformed, but I speak in tongues. Or I'm Reformed, but I still get these words or impressions or... Um, They'll maybe stop short of saying, God told me. But there's this sense of, God has given me a, a, a meaning here. He's given me a word here. He's given me something in this text that's beyond what's written. And we, we ought to be very careful about that. We ought to think carefully about the fact that we're not the first generation to be confronted with these kinds of claims. And those who are orthodox in their understanding of the scriptures have uniformly rejected those ideas. And we ought to reject them too. 
and this idea that private spirits, private interpretations, or a private word from God, uh, and that that is somehow more spiritual, somehow more holy, it, it, that, 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 that concept, that idea ought to be avoided. And, and in a practical matter, it becomes, I don't know if you've ever dealt with this, if you've ever had to, had to have a conversation or tried to have a dialogue or a theological discussion with someone who claims to have had a, an immediate revelation or an immediate insight, or even to say, well, the, the Spirit told me about this text. Well, how do you argue with that? And, and the, way you, the way we have to argue with it is we reject the premise. We reject the premise. Because the Word of God is sufficient, because it can, everything is, that's necessary for life and godliness is either expressly set down or necessarily contained, then we, we may and ought to reject this idea that there's some sort of extra revelation coming to us beyond what God has given to us in written form. Of course, we've already looked at this back in paragraph 6. We acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit is necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. So we, we don't deny that there is a necessity of the Spirit giving to us the, the light and the power necessary to understand the written word. But what we cannot do is say that the Spirit takes us beyond the written word. The Spirit gives us something new, something extra. Or, we ought to, to set our consciences at ease that we're not missing out on something. We're not lacking in some way. If, if, if in your uh, family devotions or in your, your private Bible reading, you are, are not walking away from your Bible studies going, you know, I just really feel like I got something really extra from the Spirit of God. Don't think you're doing something wrong or that you're lacking something or missing out on something. Uh, in fact, you ought to be very suspicious of yourself or anyone else who says they are receiving something extra from the Spirit of God. So that will close out the, the paragraphs here in chapter 1. Over the next two weeks, while, while I'm out, uh, Kyle's going to be working through with you some of the materials from Dr. Sproul, uh, looking at the, the canon, looking at the doctrine of inspiration. I think it'll be a, a great help to us uh, to better understand some of the things that we've looked at, at here. And then we'll pick up three weeks from now on chapter 2, looking at of God and the Holy Trinity. Any questions about what we've looked at today, uh, the, the use of the scriptures, the interpretation of the scriptures, uh, how the, this, this, um, the supremacy of the scriptures when compared to, well, anything. All right. Well, let's, let's pray. Prepare ourselves to worship. Father, we are grateful for your work in us and among us. We thank you that your word is is certain that it's complete, that it's infallible. We pray that you will give to us a greater understanding of it, a greater confidence in it, and that we will submit ourselves wholly and fully, without reservation, without qualification, to our triune God as revealed through your word. We ask this in Christ's name.